Hello, welcome to Empty Plates, a podcast by Bear Kitchen. Empty Plates is a podcast about food and memory. I'm your host, founder of Bear Kitchen, Anjali B.S., and I believe that every plate tells a story. Today, I am incredibly excited to be speaking to a dear friend, Chef Douglas McMaster. Doug is a leading thought leader on zero waste cooking and sustainable living. He's the founder of Silo, a leading zero waste restaurant in Hackney. He's a northerner at heart. Doug is from Worksop in Yorkshire. However, he has worked at 20 restaurants globally, including the infamous St. John's, Heston Blumenthal's renowned The Fat Duck, and of course, Noma in Copenhagen. He's been exposed to a wide array of food influences and education throughout his life, many of which have given him a particular and powerful perspective on food, sustainability, and how we can live better. Yes, well, uh, thanks for having me, Angeli. Uh, pleasure, as always. So yeah, yeah we, um, after a five-year lease, migrated to London. London was always home. Home from home, at least. I moved to London as a young chef and, uh, yeah, just fell in love with the world in London. I, uh, before that, sort of didn't know where I sort of fit and there wasn't a great deal of things that I was interested in, where I was from. And then got to London and discovered all of these sort of yeah, sights and sounds and galleries and people and multiculturalism, all the things that I love. And, uh, yeah, London kind of galvanised itself as my home from home and um, when I went to Australia for quite so many years when I came back it was always the plan to open Silo in London or mm. East London specifically but I just you know fate had another plan and <laughs> took me to Brighton which was a five-year stint and it was really yeah I kind of have this weird belief in you know what was meant to be was what happened so yeah and then eventually got to London with, in the way that I would have always dreamed to open a restaurant in East London, you know, with a, an incredible location, an incredible mm-hmm. team, mature concept, a mature um, managerial skill. And um, yeah, I needed that five years to, you know, I'd never been a head chef before I opened the restaurant. You know, I, I didn't what, in London or in Brighton? So the one in Brighton, I was sort of in over my head. I sort of dabbled in, I could call myself a head chef with what we did in Melbourne, but not really. It was just me as a singular chef. It wasn't like being a head chef where you had teams of people that you had to train and manage and inspire and, and you know, all of these things. I didn't do that. So when I opened in Brighton, it felt like I was day one of being a head chef, Mm -hmm. day one of opening a restaurant, Mm -hmm. day one of opening a zero waste restaurant. And so there was a lot of hard ground to endure, hard ground to sort of navigate. And yeah, and so it feels, um, yeah, like a sort of rite of passage. I'm very grateful for that time in Brighton because now I feel like the restaurant in Hackney Wick is what Silo as, a, as an idea that's much greater than myself deserves. Just thinking back to the dinner that I had, which was New Year's Day. Was it? Yeah. Seriously? I, I came in on New Year's Day. Did you? And yeah, it was one of my best friends, Claire, was over from New York mm. with her boyfriend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we were 
we were trying to figure out where to go and I was like we have to go yeah, yeah, to Silo yeah, yeah. and they were like let's try something new and I was like yeah Silo is the place <laughs> and actually like you're right I know it's your it's your baby but like lived in different countries there's something about Silo which is very raw mm. um, and it's interesting because it's raw but because a lot the material is quite raw as well, but there is yeah. this this feeling of simplicity, but like beautiful simplicity mm, yeah, yeah. of like raw material, and you're using a cycler approach, which mm. we'll go into more later, of like building a restaurant from ground up through the structural architecture, through all the you know through the processes and systems too. Is that like it can all be really beautiful? Mm. Uh, it doesn't have to look a certain way. It looks equal to or better than. Yeah, anything yeah, else yeah. yeah yeah i think so i think so well thank you for saying i so, love it yeah 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 <laughs> thank you i really appreciate that because it's my life you know I, I, it's not a job for me it never has been a job for me it's you know my child and um yeah when uh, i treat it as a child as in like if anybody slanders the restaurant it's like somebody's like you know verbally abusing your child you know it's, I take it very personally and okay, likewise, likewise with praise I'm equally grateful <laughs> just you just mentioned a point before we go into mm -hmm. the plates I think you weren't a trained head chef mm -hmm. and I think not that this podcast is like anything to do with like let's debunk a lot of chef concepts but I think that's a really important area to kind of discuss because mm. you know I decided to become a chef at 29 I didn't have like the formal like sort of like brigadier army mm. regiment chef yeah. training from a young age but I was trained in different areas and different areas of management so I understood the approach and the the commitment that was involved mm. but I personally feel that like no one's really this idea of being ready or having that trained to become a head chef I kind of feel like maybe it's a bit foreign now because yeah we build restaurants in so many different ways. I just wonder, like, if you could, and what your thoughts were on that. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's a trade-off between experience and fresh perspective, or mm -hmm. maybe perspective, not a but a fresh approach, maybe. So if you're trained for 10 years as a head chef or whatever um, from other people, your approach, your perspective of being a head chef is is kind of uh, molded by those that you know teach you and those you know formative experiences as a, as a head chef, and that's good. You know, you you absorb the wisdom of others, and of course that's great. However, uh, there's an argument to be had for you know when you're not formally trained, there's kind of no rules, and mm -hmm. you you often so many innovators and I don't know people with fresh ideas have not been trained uh, so many great chefs that have got really innovative restaurants were not formally trained if you've got enough kind of commitment to your cause if you're obsessive about you know doing the best possible product but haven't been formally trained then you can like um, fanatically climb the ladder of quality which is relative to doing something really special but not have a sort of pre-molded vision of what food or what a restaurant or what leadership should be and so you kind of yeah forge your own destiny in that way um so yeah but then obviously there's a huge amount of negatives with not having training you know as a head chef or whatever because you make 
so many mistakes, make so many mistakes, and that can completely derail the whole business, or you know, it can certainly, yeah, has there's a lot of baggage with that. And you know, I mentioned Brighton, and I was a really bad leader, I was a really bad head chef, and caused a lot of sort of permanent damage to the business, to relationships, to training people. You know, I, I, I was not a great. Uh, manager I was not a bad leader but I was a terrible manager and if I'd have had training prior to that maybe I would have not burned those bridges um, however there was, a, there was a kind of an approach that I had which is quite unique you know I would give the youngest chefs in the kitchen opportunities to do you know pop-up events where we mm -hmm. literally posted about it on you know social media channels like the young chef Toby and the young chef Ryan are coming together to mm -hmm. cook and they've only been in the kitchen for a year. Mm -hmm. And that would, to a lot of, you know, traditional, more so traditional head chefs, be, you know, absurd. Why would you do that? Like, they're there to, like, pick herbs and do the basic things. But for me, I wanted to sort of liberate them. I wanted them to see what I see, if only for a day, because then they would understand... Uh, what I go through, they would be more supportive of, you know, what, what position I'm in. They would see, you know, feel the burn, you know, the pressure. And they would uh, be forced to stimulate parts of their brain, which they do not use, that, is, that are inactive because they don't need to when you're picking herbs or, you know, washing dishes or whatever. And so just that's just one example of something that I did you know, it's given these really young chefs these kind of big opportunities to grow at a very young age. And I see a lot of merit and strength in that idea, even now. Um, I don't do it as much as I used to, which is a, is a shame, and I should definitely <laughs> pinch myself. But, yeah, it was a really positive thing. But, again, if I was trained to be a head chef, and, you know, that wouldn't have been part of the sort of diploma and yeah I don't know I just think that there's benefits on both sides to being a little bit naive but also being really really well trained but then yeah there's also shortcomings with both. I do agree with what you're saying actually because and the reason it, it just stuck out because I think a lot of the times when you're trying to get jobs in the food industry it comes down to qualifications and we're still in this Covid period it's this time of uncertainty mm. not to say that for the hospitality industry, uncertainty is a constant. Yeah. Um, it, it is, it's something that we're always faced with. And, okay, this is just magnified the uncertainty that we have in the industry already mm. by tenfold. Maybe that's even still low. But one thing that you just did say is that this idea of being ready, whatever industry you're in or whatever area of life that you're in, sometimes you're never really ready. If you're going to stand mm. to do a bungee jump, no yeah, matter how yeah, much you've yeah. geared yourself up to do that bungee jump, mm. you're still not ready yeah, exactly. to jump yeah, yeah. and then potentially and then fall and then go yeah, yeah. and then laugh and have that adrenaline rush. You're not ready. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so throwing people in the gauntlet, throwing yourself in the gauntlet, mm. is it's just a part of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite nice actually. So let's start with your first plate because the way that you describe this plate to me is quite interesting, but. It seems to be quite a, f a formative part of your journey as a mm -hmm. chef. So I'll just hand over to you to sure. sort of express this to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I um, was raised in sort of Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire border, just in the middle of nowhere. And there was, uh, it was just like a small town where 
there was food was just fuel it was not you didn't have a great deal of food culture there and I was certainly not raised a foodie I had no interest in food unless it was you know cheap and you know filling and salty or sugary you know it was just not there's nothing artful about food there was nothing you know hedonism was just not not what I was and so uh yeah I don't know just uh had no interest in food to be honest and so when I I think most chefs kind of rhapsodize about how, you know, they had this first smell of a truffle or, a, you know, uh, the first time they foraged mushrooms or whatever. Like, I had none of that, like none of that. No really? Interest. Nothing at all? No, nothing. I, I, you know, raised on turkey twizzlers and those potato face things, you know, mm-hmm. those things in the mm-hmm. shape of a face. And um, Sunny, do you remember Sunny D? Just like that. Oh my God, Sunny D! Yeah, yeah. So that was the world of food that I was grown yeah. and nurtured and born and whatever. Yeah, so I became a chef because of just circumstance. You know, I, I wasn't good at school, not very good at that uh, system. You know, schooling and that kind of authority and education, academia, books. I don't like any of that. I'm mm-hmm. not very good at it. And so, you know, a kitchen was one of the only options I had. And you know, I just thought it would be fun and was washing dishes. And then I just loved kitchens. I loved the banter and the freedom of speech and the sort of wild behavior. I thought that was so fascinating. You know, I was like almost a mute as a child. I was very, very shy. And I don't know what it was, just like this kind of allure of the kitchen uh, pulled me in. And um, there was never any sort of question that this was my future, like from right at the very beginning. How old were you at the very beginning? 16, 17. Wow. Straight okay. from my GCSE, you know, like mm-hmm. I was going to do A-levels, but then I was realised that that was a terrible idea. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like when... Kids, you, don't forget school. Yeah, Go to school. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> um, definitely not. No, I'm, you know, I always do talk about the way the brain works, but I have a dyslexic brain, also like a dyscalculic brain, and I'm not going to pretend that uh, I completely understand the behaviour of the brain. However, I obsessively try to understand the behaviour of my brain mm-hmm. um, because it definitely appears to work slightly differently to like you know the friends I had growing up and my family around me. And um, so, yeah, I sort of have got a fairly decent understanding of like why a dyslexic brain works differently to a non-dyslexic brain and it's basically if you imagine that different subjects are like clusters in which information travels you know in these neural pathways well instead of clusters a dyslexic brain um those points of the way the um information travels around is much more spread out so spread evenly beyond all these sort of subjects and so um, instead of these very kind of finite uh, movements of neuroactivity on a particular subject where you can focus on reading a book and this sort of way of processing information of a particular subject in quite a finite way, I would really struggle with that. You know, I mm-hmm, really, really mm-hmm. struggle with that. My brain can be, you know, reading about maths or English or science and 
or when I'm thinking about science, I'll be thinking about maths and I'll be thinking about English and I'll be thinking about this. Actually, I've thought about none of those things. But my point is mm-hmm. the information travels freely between subject to subject. A lot of innovators in the past have had dyslexia like Steve Jobs and Richard Branson and loads and loads of... And what it does is it means you really do struggle focusing on a particular subject. However, you know, the way um, the brain can reach different subjects and can make connections mm-hmm. more freely is the dyslexic brain. And it's just a, it's a misunderstanding that dyslexia is a disability. Mm-hmm. The word dis, you know, is... is probably um, connected to that assumption but yeah it's definitely not it's just a different way of processing information in the brain it's less common than non-dyslexic brains anyway I've always been super mindful of why my brain is working differently to others and it's 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 been a huge hugely beneficial it's certainly why I am where I am today is because Mm. of making these sort of connections these seeing different industries and like seeing a value over here and then connected to a problem that needs to be solved over here growing up it was like not about food it was largely about kind of finding where I fit and I didn't fit in a school didn't fit behind a book um, and I kind of fit in a kitchen but again I wasn't interested in food mm. and then a couple of years in um, still didn't love food <laughs> had you know I loved being in a kitchen and I loved like kind of being good at cooking yeah not that I was but I, I wanted to be good but at maybe cooking. understanding it maybe being able to yeah. do it and being accepted yes yeah yeah. it's yeah. a big thing about yeah. acceptance in a kitchen space mm. we're all together that sense of team and belonging yeah you can't really get that in a lot of spaces. No. And so to circle back to, you know, the dish mm. was um, more of a... So I was in York, which is in Yorkshire. It was a country house hotel called Middlethorpe Hall, quite posh. And I was, I think I was 17 or 18. And basically, I remember hating it. Like, it was an awful kitchen. It was violent and aggressive and, yeah, just full of, like, real outlaws um that were out for themselves and mm. would, would shoot you in the back if it meant getting to you know Gosh. point a to point b and and anyway and i hated it and i remember like walking down this kind of pebbled pathway to the car park after a very long grueling service and um going to my car which i would then just drive down to the staff house but anyway i was walking down there and the chefs had been talking about this place and it was called the fat duck and uh, they were talking about how mad it was and you know they were like not not slagging it off but they weren't they were just they were a bunch of very egotistical sort of you know brutish men with bad morals really bad <laughs> And anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but they were talking about this place, the Fat Duck, and my kind of, I don't know, just curiosity peaked in what they were saying, and it was more about how they were expressing mm-hmm. about this thing. Anyway, I was drawn to it, and I, I remember they had printed off a menu, because this was, I don't know, was this before, like, mobile phones? I think it was. So I'm 33 now. That must have been 13, 14 14 years ago, 15? So yeah, yeah, we had like 33 tens and 82 tens. We had mobiles, but yeah, there were, yeah, you weren't taking like, pictures. Yeah, yeah. It's when you were playing Snake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think, I, yeah, I remember having this print off, and I'm not sure. I think they just printed it off in the office. Anyway, I remember carrying this menu and like reading 
this menu and I was walking through the car park, it was dark, I was on my own, I felt really, my memory only works very well emotionally. I remember how I felt. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't remember much of what specifically was said or done or uh, it's just how I felt. I remember walking you know, down this kind of gravel path and I had my bag on and I remember being like, ugh, sick of life. And I remember reading this menu and just my head just started to fizz. It was so, so, so exciting. And I did not know what was happening. I never in my life had that kind of excitement. I was reading this menu and it was just sound so alien, but in a very exciting way. And it was, you know, for I'm sure loads of uh, people listening will know the fat duck and know what its reputation is, but they had like snail porridge and nitro green tea mousse and, you know, these kind of crazy like space age dishes. And I was just like, what is going on? Because to wind the clock back, you know, all I thought food was, was something to fill your belly and I'd sort of moved or migrated more into a, a space, a work environment where there was this kind of opulence, this kind of fancy blah 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 but I still didn't really move me in any way. I was just like, well, whatever, if people want to buy this, then fine, I'm just going Got to you. cook it. Yeah. And so that was what food was for me. And, you know, I had no, didn't think any broader. It was very sort of myopic view of that thing that you put in your mouth. And then I read this menu and I just, I was just my, it was one of these, you're sucked into the moment. You're sucked into the present. You stop thinking about everything else in the world. And like, is this kind of like this underwater feeling where everything else in the world is just like silent and you're just so focused I remember this intense focus and this feeling like my whole body was just like tingling. It was just like so memorable. And for me, that's, you know, I've got a terrible memory, but the fact that I can remember that feeling and where I was and, you know, it was obviously incredibly significant. And it was one of many moments in my career. I say many, but like, you know, more than a handful sort of moments, but yeah. And this was the first where I just remember being like, holy, you know, F-U-C-K, like, <laughs> like, food. He said fuck, it's <laughs> Food can be this thing, whatever this thing is, I have no idea, but whatever this thing is, it sounds so much better than what I'm doing. It's, I don't know, it's just, oh my God, food can be anything, it seems. And it was just this kind of like, oh my God, this like doorway had just opened in my mind to you know, a future of infinite possibilities. And I was just like, <laughs> so it's not a dish, but it's a, I think a much more interesting moment in my career. just laughing at the expression you did. It was, uh, what yeah, was the expression? Yeah. How yeah. do we, it's a atomic mind explosion, bomb. atomic bomb explosion. Yeah. Our hands are in the air right now. Yeah. No, but I get that feeling because I think what you've touched on is like, you know, like food is consumption, but it's also sustenance. Mm. And the way that, today's generation you know the way that food is marketed because of of this highly digital world when mm. you're talking about when you were 16 years old you at what the supermarket was telling you or what the magazine was showing you and you dreamt of a world of food based on what we were seeing in print media yeah. we didn't have this like world of technology on our phone we would hear things we'd see on television it's when cooking was you know still television and the morning shows were doing incredibly well or you tuned in mm. and that's when Jamie Oliver was like 
kicking off his, you yeah. know, uh, Naked Chef mm. show. And that was a, a phenomenal time, I think, for, mm. for food on TV. Yeah. But you're so right. Like, it was quite boring at that point as well, yeah. what we were seeing in food. There wasn't... And, and the restaurants you'd go to, also quite boring. And I grew up in Leicester. The northern part of the country, unless you're in, like, the city, so you're in Manchester or, like, literally banging, like, Nottingham, mm. we didn't really have that much exposure to a wide variety no, of food. No, we of had course. you might have your Chinese takeaways, you have your you had your Asian takeaways, your Chinese takeaways and your Indian takeaways. Yeah. Pizza spot. Yeah. That was basically yeah, 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 a chicken yeah. and chip yeah. shop spot. Yeah. We didn't really have much. Yeah, the world of food to my, on my radar was like to Chinese food was these you know, fried chips, um, not I, like in the fish and chip shop, but they were like the frozen ones that had this kind of like, almost like nothing, really much more crispy than the fish and chip shop. Did chips. you have that with like chips, curry sauce and rice? Did you have that combo? No, the, the combo was always this awful, awful sweet and sour sauce that was like, a, like <laughs> fluorescent orange and it just tasted like sugar and it was awful. And then I remember being like, ugh, Chinese food's awful. And, you know, that was Chinese food yeah, to yeah, me yeah. on my mind map. And then there was fish and chips. And then there was just, like, processed ready meals. And, like, mm. you know, my dad was highly creative and, like, had their, like, specialities. My dad was an artist. My mum was, she's got her own garden ministry even until today. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, beauty in, in the things that they did and do. But food, they was just like, whatever. Like, it's yeah. just going to, like, a car is to get to A to B. Clothes are to keep you warm. Food is to make you not hungry anymore. Yeah. You know, that was, like, what food was for. And so, yeah, that was uh, my knowledge of food. Yeah. What was your favourite meal? If that was your knowledge of food, food was sustenance growing up. What was your favourite meal, if you can think of a favourite meal that you would have at home? Yeah, I did have one, actually. I Go did on. have one. I um, sidestepped this one because I, I sort of, yeah, wanted to segue on to what I'm going to talk about. But, but yeah, there was a, um apple and blackberry crumble that my mum used to make. And it was significant because we had an apple orchard, which makes me sound like I'm from some, like, posh place but it we, we were, my mum worked as garden nursery and inherited this like old house and we had like a mini little orchard so uh, you know sort of from we had a quite a tough upbringing but we we got this little orchard it's quite yeah nice to live in the country and I was lucky very very lucky to live I've in seen the videos of your house yeah and yeah. it's very pretty yeah it's um it is it's like a 510 year old house yeah. uh, an old cottage and um it's on the old day one as you go up from like London to Edinburgh, sort of halfway of the country, and um, yeah, it was an old inn. Yeah, there's some famous, there's some pretty interesting history. Mary, Queen of Scots, stayed there when she was on her way to Scotland, and um, it was famously Dick Turpin's secret hideout. So Dick wow. Turpin was like the famous highwayman, you know, the stand and deliver kind of that guy on the horseback with a kind of uh, thing veil over his mouth. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he historically hid in a house. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to hide in, hide in the walls. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, very fortunate to have lived there when I was growing up. And we had a little, little orchard. We had some apples and then there was blackberry bushes. And I just remember that. And, yeah, I can't remember if it was actually done well or not. Yeah. I guess it was a sensation of, like, you know, real food, you know. Yeah. wild A wild blackberry, you know, baked freshly with apples and, you know, butter and sugar or whatever, like, 
yeah, when you don't know that, it was quite pleasing on the palate. You know, there's a little bit of euphoria going on. But yeah, that's, I guess, as much as I have to say about that dish. It's interesting you mention that, because the Doug that I know so many years on, I mean, we haven't known each other for like 15, 20 years, but for the last several years we've known each other, is that is a part of you as well. Like, you yeah. you do forage, you like being outdoors, you want to be aligned with your environment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Silo yeah. is a zero-waste restaurant. Yeah. You have a circular approach to running your restaurant. Like, massively. Yeah, maybe it's more significant than I think, maybe. Like, yeah. I'm just trying to link in the pieces of what you're saying, it's almost like maybe food wasn't glamorized growing up, but the way that your mind works, you found an approach of putting these bits together, you know, seeing nature, growing food around you, yeah. and understanding that if food is available all the time, yeah. how do we make it last? Yeah. I don't know, it's just my uh, two cents yeah, Parkinson no, moment you, you, of yeah. evaluating your yeah. There's probably a lot to it, certainly subconsciously it's probably buried um the values are buried yeah that i don't necessarily consider but yeah if there's one thing i'm sure of is that i'm not aware of most of the things that are going on inside my own head <laughs> you say that and then just a piercing look in the eye like, <laughs> is he sure but okay then let's you talked about i mean i think we've talked about like multiple plates of food now which is phenomenal but there was a couple of experiences of food which you said were really formative so once you're a chef you've been around the block you'd seen food you've been cooking food you'd had these light bulb moments within you of mm. oh my god this can also be food yeah what were these experiences where when you ate at other places again uh, the thing that i always want to share and i'm sure you'll be able to like pull more information out of me but um <laughs> I aspire to do things that are creative because things that are creative make me happy and that's just, I'm hardwired that way. That's just who I am. And mm, that's, mm. so that's, you know, I'm not like, I don't have a plate of excellent food and I appreciate that it's excellent food, but it doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. I don't feel ecstatic. Whereas when I stumble upon some original information which is in some way instructive or inspirational or stimulating that's for me what i search for and crave and they're the moments that i kind of have this kind of like definite you know feeling of being alive mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i feel alive and that's i guess yeah that's who i am and i remember the sort of second most significant moment in that regard on the subject of food was when I read the St. John cookbook. Mm -hmm. I remember being in some, I don't remember, I was really young. Uh, no, when was I? I can't remember. I was going to see some family. I don't remember where we were. I don't remember the, the context, but I remember being in this like gastro pub in somewhere, I have no idea where we were. And I remember going into the kitchen and I don't know why we went into the kitchen, um, but my dad at the time was just like, oh, you should go and speak to the chefs, knowing that, like, you know, I was on that sort of path. Yeah. And then I was still at that age, terrified of people and socially, I mean, and went into the kitchen and it was just like, you know, all these sort of aggressive chefs and, you know, just like talking at me and I was just kind of mutely, you know, not saying anything. And then they just, I just remember them handing me the St. John cookbook. I remember like reading it and seeing you know, brain on toast and wet walnuts and back fat and, you know, all of these sort of 
quite extreme, but classic St. John dishes and just being like, what on earth is this? Yeah. Like, it was the same sort of sensation that I had um, with the fat duck menu and just being like, oh my God, my mind once again had been blown. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, this is a whole new, you know, wave of information, this whole new subculture of food that I'm now aware of. And yeah. my brain is going, it is in a good place right now and yeah and then years later worked at St John that sort of oh, yeah. um, I worked at the Fat Duck as well but that was a stage like mm-hmm. a work experience St John was everything and more I'd hoped it would be and so that was definitely that sort of secondary experience in my sort of but there's a dish that I can pin to that if you like is the Eccles cake and uh, Lancashire cheese so it's just a wedge of Lancashire cheese and an Eccles cake and it's a dessert. It's served on the dessert menu, or the puddings menu, as they call it. And um, it was just, yeah, it was like a homemade puff pastry with a, an Eccles mixture, you know, wrapped and baked, and then a slab of, a good slab of Lancashire cheese. And I was at that stage in my career where I'd only known fine dining, and it was also sort of pretentious and dots and foams, and it was just about all the wrong things. And then St. John was about all the right things. It was just a different culture that that spoke to me. I was much more in tune with the values at St. John than the rest of the places that I'd been working for. And yeah, that dish was extraordinary. I'd never tasted anything like it. I'd never tasted a Neckles cake, to be fair. Is it still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's classic. Like, it never leave the menu. Never, ever. Both St. John's. And they sell the Eccles cake as you can buy them to take away. I highly recommend it. Um, I might just go and sit and have this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think just I need to do. I think I might need to go with you and we'll yeah, go and do yeah, it. yeah, yeah. You will be. <laughs> it's a, it's a real sort of. Yeah, certainly if you've never had an Eccles cake. Yeah. Yeah, you'll remember it for the rest of your life. Yeah, for sure. And it's just it's that good and it's that um, kind of original and, and yeah. To be in a central London restaurant, going back, you know, I don't know, ten years or whatever. To have a dish of, you know, Lancashire cheese and Eccles cake was just, like, pretty mind-blowing for m- multiple reasons. So, yeah, that was that was my second dish. You say second dish, but I feel like we've gone through four dishes, five dishes, which is, <laughs> which is no, but, but it's... But I'm uh, pinning it to... To experiences. Yeah, sort yeah. of plateaus in my career, I guess. Let's not say career, life. What's come up, just as we're talking, is this idea of, like, sustenance has come up. But I know, obviously, that's that's quite obvious words, food is sustenance, but defining it in the way of like, food hasn't always been about glamorization, it's about what sustains me. And everything that you're saying, there's a sense of like simplicity and grounding, or you're like completely wowed. Mm. You've got Hester on one side, but then you've got another side, which is like St. John saying, well, actually, you know, we're going to be central London, Mm. but we're going to keep it really simple. And we're going to put a combination, but the names and the words, Mm. they just make you feel at home. You're like, yeah, yeah. Which again is wow, again, because I think we're always trying to like innovate. Mm. So I just wonder, where do you think Silo sits in that, like, in that framework? Um, it's closest to St. John, for sure. There's so many things I want to say from what you just said. Um, <laughs> you, you use the word art and it becomes, yeah, it's quite difficult to get away with using the word art in food without sounding cliche, but whatever uh but yeah like so my definition of art and this is uh an idea that i'd absorbed from 
Brian Eno, of all people, and he said that art is action in a space that doesn't need to exist. And that's a really fascinating idea of what art is. So, like, tying your shoes is not art because it's like a, it's a pragmatic uh, approach to a thing that you need to do in life or you know, driving to work. or But, like, you don't need to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. You don't need to draw. No one's going to, you know, it's not going to help you survive. It's not going to make you breathe better. Or, you know, you don't need to style your hair. Mm-hmm. You don't need to dress a certain way. You might need to dress in clothes to stay warm. Yeah. But you don't need to dress in a particular way that, you know, is flamboyant or is yep. colourful or mm-hmm. is a particular, you know, cut a particular way. So art is everything that is not necessary. And I find that so, so brilliant. And you could say with food, you know, art is, and there's good art and bad art. Yeah. Like, we, going back mm-hmm. to the food as fuel, as soon as it's not about feeding you, it then becomes an art form. And and so, yeah, that's just something that I wanted to say because I find that a really interesting definition of art. Yeah. I've always defined art as just, like, expression, um, which mm. is, but... Um, I, I like that definition. Anyway, um, and so the thread, you know, I think if I was to psychoanalyze myself, was I had a dad that was an artist. He was a painter and a poet, and um, sort of always sort of looked up to him. And I've inherited him. I am him. Yeah, my mannerisms, my behaviour is so much like him. I have attributes from my mum, but um, definitely more so like my dad. And certainly when he died, I felt a kind of not a responsibility, but a, a wanting to be the things that he was great at. And he was a great artist. And so I aspired to do that. So I guess that's my motivation. And I found myself in the hospitality industry, <laughs> which is a less obvious place than, mm-hmm. say, painting or poetry or music even. And so I guess, whether it's subconscious or not, kind of gravitated towards you know, this moment with with the fat duck menu, you know, this moment with St. John, mm-hmm. and then my third uh, point would, would be this place in Copenhagen, which we'll come on to in a minute, I'm sure. But, like, they stand out to me because they are these kind of very unique expressions of something that did not need to happen. Well, you could actually argue, I'm contradicting myself here, but they do, some of these things do need to happen. Less so about Heston and the fat duck, but, like, St. John... Um, was almost for me an antidote to a very bad, elitist, pretentious culture of cooking yeah. that existed. You know, Agreed. the Michelin star obsession world. This word perfection, you know, perfection does not exist. It's not a thing that exists. And like this search for perfection, or this kind of like ruthless climb to the top of that pyramid thinking that perfection would be found at the top of the pyramid is incredibly damaging you lose sight of things that really matter in that search because you become so fanatical and obsessed with climbing to the top of that pyramid to find that thing this three michelin star idea um that you hurt people along the way you know you create a lot of waste you burn yourself out working 90 hours a week you know you you form aggressive relationships in kitchens because you know as soon as something's not perfect it's really stressful and the pressure to be perfect is so intense that it's like a it's such a destructive path 
there's a lot of negatives with trying to be perfect and it's an illusion it doesn't exist and yeah it's just such a foolish foolish climb and St John was just about different values it wasn't about trying to get through Michelin stars it was about a, uh, a food system uh, that was kind to uh, the nature that provided it you know this idea of nose to tail cooking if an animal is going to lose its life you know it is a criminal to not maximize um, all parts of that animal and the way in which people would be treated you know we'd work six shifts a week and it was sustainable like yeah. just for people and it was kind and you know there's good people that worked there and you know the actual physical environment of St John was like being in a kind of art gallery um it was very different it was so there was no like you know Egyptian tablecloths and there was no fancy this and fancy that that doesn't really need to exist again it's this yeah. sort of like this opulence which I really did not like growing up and so you know you could argue that it's a force for good so it sort of did need to happen. But I'm going to just I feel like you've talked about two really important plates I, I want you to just bring in the third plate yeah, because sure. I think it's yeah. really pivotal to how you're yeah yeah, yeah totally describing will... this it needs to be a part of the trifecta so yes yeah yeah go ahead yeah, yeah. So um, in 2009, I was 21, I think I was, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I went to Scandinavia to restaurant Noma, to Copenhagen in Denmark. And um, it was one of these, again, I'd, this is where I think the internet was now a thing. We had smartphones where you could start searching and it was easier to gain that information and see this place in Copenhagen and was massively, again, the same sort of like, ooh, this is exciting. This is a whole nother thing, a new subculture of food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't molecular. It wasn't St. John. It was like this new thing. And that to me was just like, you know, creativity needs to be fed like food. And unfortunately, once you've eaten one form of food, you know, learning about molecular gastronomy, you feed yourself on all the new information in that world, but then when there's no new information you starve and so you look to another thing and then feed yourself on all the information in that world and then you know you eventually come to a point where there's not much else that's stimulating you you know it's this constant yep. search for food <laughs> and so it's like oh this thing in Copenhagen amazing and I was just like gobbling down all the information and inspiration went there and it's really really been the most, I don't want to say the most, but I think St. John was the most important restaurant and food style and food culture for me, probably. But then Noma was a close second. And yeah, going over to Scandinavia and the network of people that I've created and, and connected to is still to this day hugely prevalent in every single day of my life. The Mad Academy um, mm -hmm. is very innovative food yeah. academy. Mm -hmm. And there's just this huge kind of, consciousness to the future of sustainable food in Copenhagen so I'm drawn over there like a yo-yo. Do you think that exists here? Uh, not like it does in Copenhagen, no. No. I was having a discussion about this the other week and I was trying to figure out, let's say because Copenhagen, let's say Scandinavia in general has gone through a massive rebrand in the last 20 years of mm. its food identity. Mm. You know, I have a lot of friends from like Denmark and Norway that maybe 20 years ago they were like, we didn't know what we ate, you know, yeah, and yeah. now they're like, you know, we would eat, moose was a staple part of our diet, but, you know, now it's been revived, mm. and do you think it's because there's been a, a you know, sort of a regionalised branding exercise by leaders in the space, mm. and in the UK we're too conservative, 
or we're stuck in our ways perhaps or we're, where we think we already have an approach that works I don't know because yeah I don't know uh, if we have a cuisine do we have a cuisine a little bit I think St John is as close to British food as it, it comes yeah like St John is very British food this is true there's a lot of other forces at play you know when I described so this childhood where there was just no I'm not interested in food at all yeah I think that is um, hugely prevalent uh, in the UK just there's a lot of people that just don't prioritize food there's far more exciting subjects especially with the dawn of the smartphone the values system has changed so so that's really important thing Yeah. yeah But Copenhagen had this sort of renaissance. And I wouldn't even say that they've necessarily kind of found their roots. I think that they've just been turned on to gastronomy a whole lot more. So when you go to Copenhagen, like, you'll find as much non-Nordic food that is excellent as you will find excellent Nordic food. So there's this, I'd say it's more of a revival, or not a revival, but like a... a surgeon, surge, a surge, resurgence, resurgence. Mm, I wouldn't say resurgence. No. It's just this new manifestation. It's the best country in the world for quality food. Like it's it's extraordinary the quality. The standards are just like like you know the best bakeries are now in Copenhagen. The best you know all food types are just Copenhagen is just like running away with the competition, like running away with it. And it's not just in Scandinavian food, though. That is where the sort of this uprising started was with Noma and mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. you know, Rene famously, Rene Wadzepi, the head chef of Noma, had the unique um, set of qualities that he was firstly an excellent chef and secondly he had a vision and his vision was this sort of uh, series of questions and that's what a lot of innovators do and that is I don't know if he's dyslexic, but it certainly shows signs of dyslexia like by asking big questions, basically, and seeing information from different industries and different yeah, things yeah. that were going on in the world and politics and whatever. And he was just like, well, why, why are we, as a food culture, just like ripping off all these other countries? Why is like the most popular food like Italian food or whatever? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not in Italy. Like, what's wrong with our food? And he was asking these sort of big questions and then kind of created these limitations for Noma and these very sort of liminal stages of that restaurant's existence. And he said, we're only going to, we're not going to get truffles from Alba. We're not going to get Iberico pork from the south of Spain, Mm -hmm. which is what every other Michelin star restaurant was doing. He was just like, no, we're just going to use what's from our region. And that was totally unheard of. It was normal for those countries, though. If you're eating Italian food in, Mm. if you're eating food in Turin, the produce is coming from Turin because it's, yeah. I, I think a lot of countries, it's not about the value is not derived by the cost. The value is derived by the quality of yeah. the produce. So those Italy, France, Spain, Japan have um, a rich history with food. Yeah. It's part ingrained into their cultures, whereas not so much in England and America and uh, I would argue Scandinavia. Yeah, um, I agree. And so, you know, we tell a French person to eat a ready meal or a Japanese person to eat a fish finger and you get laughed at. You know, it's culturally ingrained that, like, you know, there are these kind of standards. And I'm generalising, obviously, it's not every single Japanese person would turn I'm Indian, I get it. Like, exactly. And so, um, but it's less so the case in England and I think at that time, Denmark. And, yeah, René was brave enough to say, right, we're only going to take things that are from our region. So, you know, and then was forced into 
picking wild food because he was so limited by what he actually had access to. So if he wanted herbs, he would have to go and pick them. And it was just this really incredible, like, limitation breeds creativity sort of moment. And it sounds quite simplistic, like, oh, yeah, just taking food. But back then, in the sort of fine dining world, the context of Noma then, in 2007, whenever it started, I'm not sure, was radical, super radical. So I went to Noma in those early days and was just like, absolutely, like, wow, like, what is just happening? And I see Silo as a sort of, not marriage, because, you know, I think it's its own thing, but certainly the, the two biggest kind of influences were this St. John thing, this sort of very, like, no bullshit, honest, stripped back, natural food. However, the actual food itself is quite rich and meaty and, you know, rich. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas it's at heavy. Noma, it's heavy, yeah. yeah. At Noma, it was similarish values, you know, um, but like light and acidic and fresh and wild and way less like meat proteins. And yeah, that I, I see Silo is t- borrowing huge inspiration from both those restaurants that I've worked at and yeah Noma was the sort of third meal dish there was I can name loads of dishes that I had the first time I ate there which was 2009 they put this rock on the table which I think is a bit naff but uh, <laughs> on the rock was this massive warm tail of langoustine this huge thing that had just been plucked out of the ocean and it was just like a monster in it there's this like seaweed mayonnaise thing it's just like see and then like all this dried seaweed and you just basically with your finger and they told you to eat it with your fingers and it was very sort of personal and uh, interactive and and then it was just like the best thing i'd ever eaten at that point and, and tasting seaweed i was like oh my god seaweed crazy you know yeah and yeah and then there was this dish of like pickled vegetables with bone marrow and it was just like all these different ribbons of different vegetables that had been pickled in different pickles and it was just like this oh, explosive wow. you know eating experience and I just found it so so brilliant and beautiful and yeah it's been a massive inspiration and um yeah so Noma would be my third one. I love how you've put you know starting from Heston then St. John's and then Noma. I think you also, what you've managed to do in the last hour is also, not only is it your sort of last 17 years as a chef that you've yeah. sort of gone down that journey of, but it's also, it's also historically, a lot of the, our food journey in the UK and globally has gone through is that, what is innovation? It's, I feel like that, that comes up quite a lot. Is that, mm. is innovation, is it radical to stick to simplicity? Is it radical to move forward and find new ways? Mm. Um, and I think we constantly go through that really. I feel like it's a cycle, you know, mm. and I think with what you're doing now at Silo, which is maybe potentially like, like you said, it takes influences from both, but it's also mm. going, well, can we take both to have the least amount of impact yeah. as possible yeah, yeah. Yeah. and to push that message far mm. and wide, yeah. which I think you do... A really profound job of mm. well you know the st john thing was like you don't see it on the surface but like it's super like a step in the right direction towards a natural relationship to food uh and then noma a much bigger step back 
like to this nature thing. So there's this big, you know, these big leaps from, you know, the way, way of the way of the food world then to the what it is now, and it's pushing our food systems into a space which is more natural. And that goes for like the actual physical food being, you know, more sustainably organically sourced to like just the culture around eating is more natural. And and silo, I would say, is an extreme step beyond that in that direction to be more natural that is essentially the goal of zero waste is to like reintegrate with nature because zero waste is nature you know a jungle doesn't have a bin you know these places in outside of an industrial landscape don't have bins you know all the things are natural nothing is is wasted you know you could say that an animal goes to the toilet but that is food for the next you know cycle of life and so there is no waste and that yeah is certainly the overarching sort of that's what sits on the horizon for me for, for silo for zero waste and that's sort of what we're moving to and yeah not delusional in thinking we're there yet but like you know one step at a time well thank you it's been a really intriguing discussion to actually have right now there's so many discussions that I can have with people and we can talk about how difficult the last six or nine months have been. We can mm. talk about so many different things. It's such a breath of fresh air to have a conversation that's not, that's able, you know, as we go through reflection, we've also all been reflecting on what our process is, where we are in the moment. We've had a lot of time to think. Yeah. But for some, it's made them innovate. For people, it's made them simplify. Mm. But what I'm sensing, it's also, it's, it's also allowed people to clarify you know mm. about what's really important right now and i feel like this journey and this sort of this equation that you've created not just for silo i think for yourself and yeah. also for people who are in the scene right now because you know we live in london and it it's good to have examples of consumption in different ways mm -hmm. you know yeah. so thank you so much for coming on to the podcast Doug. Thank um you, yeah no problem it's been an absolute pleasure and uh should we go and have some lunch now Yes, please. Okay. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And why not follow Bear Kitchen on Instagram?